This is Lit Mix, a podcast about the books that challenge us. I'm Andrea. And I'm Rachel. We're friends who met in eighth grade and grew up to be a high school English teacher and a K-12 school librarian. On each episode of our show, we focus on one book, exploring why it's controversial and what makes it important. Today, we're discussing Gender Queer by Maya Kobe. So the quote I found comes from A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. It goes, it is fatal to be a man or a woman, pure and simple. One must be a woman manly or a man womanly. A great mind must be androgynous. It is one of the tokens of the fully developed mind that it does not think specially or separately of sex. So like... In the context, Wolf is talking about creativity and specifically writing. Like, if you want to write great literature, Wolf is saying, you can't be stuck inside just one perspective of the world that's defined by the sex or gender that you happen to express in the world. You need to be able to inhabit any identity if you're going to really write from that identity, like really truly. And so that's where this idea of like the androgynous mind comes from. In Wolf's idea, that's the most fertile, creative imagination is the imagination that can be androgynous. Wolf says that most of what separates the sexes is not really about nature and the way we actually are. But what separates men and women is culture and traditions and different ways of being brought up in the world. And also very practical things like how much money is given to the men's college versus how much money was given to the women's college. And when did the women's college open? Oh, it opened like five minutes ago. And the men's college is like a thousand years ago. And so just like her point is that all the different things that make us us are not necessarily down to nature. They're part of culture. And if we take a broader perspective so that like the frame around us is not a building, but is the sky under the big blue sky, right? Gender doesn't matter at so much. And Wolf wants us to take like that bigger perspective, like out under the sky, not just stuck in a building with our ideas. And that expresses a lot about Maya's childhood, which I think is like a great place to lead into where we're going to talk about Maya Kobabe's graphic memoir, Genderqueer. Genderqueer by Maya Kobabe was published in 2019 as a graphic novel memoir. It is the winner of an ALA Alex Award, which we will talk about a little bit more later. And it was also named a Stonewall Honor Book in the nonfiction category. One of the reasons why we're talking about it is because it's the number one most challenged book of 2021, according to the American Library Association's list of most challenged books. The reasons that are given for these challenges are for LGBT content and for sexually explicit images. So we will be addressing that today. Also good to note, Maya uses the Spivak pronouns, which are E, M, Air, and we will be using those pronouns for Maya as we discuss the book today. 
something I loved about this book is that Maya's childhood in rural Northern California, which is a place that I have lived, was a childhood that was really close to nature. Maya loved snakes and loved playing with air best friend outside. And you get the sense in Maya's childhood that gender was just not a thing. Maya had long hair. Lots of people had long hair. Maya liked to pee on the ground outside. Lots of people like to pee on the ground outside. And it you just get this picture of like a pretty idyllic growing up. And there's not really questions around gender until Maya goes to school. Yeah, I noticed that too, especially because Maya later talks about how both of her parents are not very concerned with their own gender or playing into gender stereotypes. So uh, her childhood really was just like, you're a kid, not you're a girl or you're a boy. (laughs) So, I mean, it just showed like such a big contrast of when Maya went to school, how people reacted to certain things that he did. Like the the scene when they were on a field trip and um, Maya's, they, they were at some kind of body of water and Maya's dad took his shirt off because it was hot out and he wanted to go in the water or whatever. And Maya took air shirt off too. And then everyone freaked out. Because right. that's not what girls do. Like Maya is indistinguishable. Like for a period of time, like until puberty, kids are pretty much kids. Mm-hmm. And Maya's body hadn't changed or anything. Like there was nothing weird about him taking her shirt off. Right. Except that the teacher was like, no, don't do that. <laughs> and it was like, oh, what's wrong? And it's like, we don't know that there's a problem until someone is saying like that's a problem but like why why is it a problem Mm -hmm. Maya wasn't taught to think like that by her parents like a lot of kids are from a very young age taught to be gendered I loved this book just because I love graphic novel memoirs that is one of my favorite genres to pick up So I was definitely interested in reading it. And I thought it was kind of cool. I read in an article that Maya primarily wrote the book for her parents and extended family as a way to express what being genderqueer or non-binary means to M specifically. Because even though Maya came out to her family, I got the sense that they didn't exactly respond bond in the way that Maya wanted Mm -hmm. and he still felt like he needed to explain Mm -hmm. this part of our identity. So I really liked the different ways that Maya explores gender and our feelings surrounding gender in different illustrations and different theories and metaphors. Like one part Maya illustrates a theory that maybe he was born with two half souls, one female and one male, and that Maya had a long lost twin who was a boy who always felt like he should be a girl. 
So I thought that was really poetic. And then in another section, Maya uses the image of a scale with weights on both sides as a metaphor for gender identity. Maya wants to balance the masculine and feminine sides, but the feminine side is weighed down more already because Maya was assigned female at birth. So Maya is trying to pile things up on the masculine side to even things out a little bit. And that really kind of helped me visualize what that kind of struggle would feel like. So I like that because, you know, queer readers can see themselves in that. And people who are maybe trying to understand what their queer family and friends are going through can also get a little bit of an understanding from seeing things from different perspectives like that. Oh, absolutely. I loved the image of the two trees. There's a page where there's um, on the left, there's like a tree that represents feminine energy. And then on the right, a tree that re represents like masculine energy. And then in the middle, there's underneath the ground between the two trees, there's like a little tiny seedling. And what's under the surface still is some kind of non-binary gender queer energy. And that's where Maya is finding air spirit. It's so intimate, this book. I love the introduction where Maya frames the creation of this book as peeling back the brown paper that that he has put over these really intimate difficult parts of herself i think it's so great the way the book doesn't hold back like he put it all out there it's very intimate um and yeah it's so vulnerable it's really such a gift to like queer kids i feel um to have like yeah give shape to something that's very much like inside of maya and i think it's really beautiful that that he made it for our family it made me think of this part in Gender Queer that was probably my favorite page where Maya is making another nature metaphor to talk about gender, <laughs> as he does. And um, the, the quote is, I began to think of gender less as a scale and more as a landscape. Some people are born in the mountains while others are born by the sea. Some people are happy to live in the place they were born while others must make a journey to reach the climate in which they can flourish and grow. Between the ocean and the mountains is a wild forest. That is where I want to make my home. I love that. I just thought that was perfect because, I mean, that's something that we can all relate to, I think. Yeah, some people want to stay in the town that they grew up in. Some people need to go on adventures or move somewhere else. So I thought it was really relatable. I also like that this nature metaphor sets up a reminder that gender doesn't have to be a binary. So it doesn't have to be just that you live in the mountains or the sea. There's also a forest. There might also be other landscapes that you could imagine. So yeah, I like that. <laughs> Hmm. Other landscapes that you can imagine. I like that. I love seeing Maya develop like a sense of personal fashion and style and discovering what he loves. And yeah, that those desires don't necessarily neatly fit into like department store 
categories. But outside of the department store where there's a girl section and a boys section, yeah, there's a landscape and there's a lot of room in that landscape. And I think that is beautiful. Something else I loved about this book was Maya's relationship with her sister, Phoebe. And I guess we should say Phoebe, I guess, colored the book. Mm-hmm. So the illustrations are by Maya, but apparently just in black and white. And Phoebe is the colorist. Yeah, yeah. And I just love how Phoebe at age 13 says to Maya, I think you're a genderless person. Yeah, it said that she knew it before I did. I love that. <laughs> I feel like it makes so much sense that this book is something that Maya made for her family because it's mm. in some ways such a love letter to that family. And I'd love seeing the way in which who who her parents are, who her sister is, that that acceptance is just completely sustaining. It would be such a different story if her parents and sister were arguing with them. Yeah, right before we started recording, I was watching a clip of a video of an interview with Maya and Maya was talking about how it was very easy to come out as bi because air extended family had queer family members and that wasn't something that Maya was uncomfortable with mm-hmm. but the uh the gender aspect because Maya didn't have really role models for that of people who who are either trans or non-binary. That was more of a journey for M, and uh, also more of a conversation with their parents. Yeah. Because they probably were not as familiar with genderqueer or non-binary people as they were with gay people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they... I feel like a lot of those conversations, Maya's family members had questions for Maya about what, like, what is this? What does this mean? Oh, they, they did. Yeah. I want to talk about the lesbian aunt. Oh yeah. That aunt was not (laughs) into like, well, she was, she was like, you know, this is, uh, you're being misogynistic. Well, so that's, I think, a question, a real question that I think people legitimately might have about Maya's feelings about gender. Like, the question that I think the aunt is asking is, like, is Maya's discomfort with femininity, is that a discomfort that's essentially created by misogyny? An image that I really loved in the book has to do with Maya's discussion of air pronouns and how, of course, pronouns being the way that people frequently gender each other. Maya describes being misgendered as a small spike of solvable discomfort and he compares it to something like a label that keeps itching your necks or like a pebble in your shoe. And I just thought that was such a completely universal, like physical experience that everybody's had and such a great way of letting us know what it feels like on the inside 
to be misgendered. It's just this thing that if you could just cut it away, it's not really taking away from anything at all. It's just making you a little more comfortable in your own skin. And that's an amazing thing to be able to do for somebody. And it seems like something we should be able to do for people, for one another. It's a small amount of effort to not make someone else uncomfortable, to make them feel welcome and respected. And Maya talks in the book about when he first started encountering other people who used they them pronouns about kind of having to correct our friends and correct herself when they misgendered someone and maya says it took practice but then it became second nature so if you have someone in your life who uses pronouns other than he or she it doesn't really take a lot of time or effort to become comfortable using those other pronouns so uh like for us in recording this podcast i have not had much experience talking about or with anyone who uses those speedback pronouns of am and air, but because that those are the pronouns that Maya uses, that is how we are referring to Maya. Plain and simple. It seems very simple to me. It seems very simple. Mm -hmm. Andrea, you and I were in high school together and we, I think, took most of our English classes together. You were in my English class like multiple years in high school. And do you remember if we read the diary of Anne Frank? I know we read that in, I want to say like eighth grade. I want to say it was in seventh or eighth grade. Must have been eighth grade then because I read it at, I wasn't at your school in seventh grade. I came in eighth grade and we had Mrs. Duke. Also, did you not start at the beginning of a school year or you were there at the beginning? I think I started like right after my birthday, which is the end of September. Something like that. Kind of like after a month of school or something in eighth grade. And we read, we read the diary of Anne Frank. I don't remember, Andrea, what edition we read. Although like at this point I have a bajillion different editions, but I'm pretty sure that the edition that we read of Anne Frank had edited out a lot of parts that related to Anne's sexuality. I think that this is interesting because, you know, that was a decision that was made when the diary was first published, I believe in the early 50s, a decision, of course, made by Otto Frank, Anne's father. We definitely read some kind of like abridged version, but I do remember there must have been hints of something in there because I remember thinking like, whoa, Anne Frank was kind of a lesbian as we... As an eighth grader, I remember thinking that. So I don't, I don't know. It obviously was not explicit in the edition that we read, but there was there was something in there that kind of hinted at something. So I'm pretty sure I know um, which passage you're talking about. Um, and then there's there's like another passage. So there's a couple of passages in Anne Frank's diary have at various times and in various editions been included or excluded because of people's sense of what is proper, right, appropriate for 
um, kids to be reading in school. And I mean, I think that this is always an interesting conversation and one that's necessary. What should kids be encountering in school? What should they not be encountering in school? And, and how do we decide? For myself, I actually feel like Anne Frank's unedited diary is really important for students to read because her curiosity about you know, just the mechanics of sex and, you know, how the, her biology, her genitalia versus, you know, male genitalia. She's curious and she asks this question, which my students and I find so poignant. And by the way, I had to copy this and give it as a handout because I was not able to find enough copies of the definitive edition of Anne Frank to supply all my students. Like they were that hard to get. You could only get the edited diary. Um, but the passage, the passage I gave to my students is like Anne wondering like why, Anne is wondering why parents would deprive their kids of good information about sex and bodies because they're curious and they want it. And if they're curious and they want it, then they're going to get it somewhere, whether or not their parents are involved. Like, don't you want kids to have good information? So that's why I hand out that page, even if it's not in the book. Yeah, I think Andrea this kind of connects into, you know, why we're here and talking about gender queer. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the things that make people truly uncomfortable with this book? One of the biggest reasons this book is being challenged is not only because of transphobia and people maybe not wanting their kids to read about a non-binary character, but also because Maya really explores sexuality in, in addition to her gender in this book and in great detail and especially because it's a graphic novel so there are pictures that depict this and so there's some images in there that some people would consider inappropriate for their teens and you know, if I had read this book in high school, I probably would have been a little bit shocked about some of the things that are in there. Mm -hmm. uh, just because maybe it would have been the first time that I saw or read about these things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I read The Perks of Being a Wallflower in high school and that's not illustrated but it definitely talks about sex in a way that kind of shocked me a little bit when i was reading it as an innocent teenager but it's also it instantly became one of my favorite books so I, even if kids are reading things that are sort of new or surprising to them that doesn't mean that it's going to be harmful to them, first of all. And also, kids and teenagers have access to all kinds of images on, on TV, mm -hmm. online, whether it's sexual images, violent images. It's very easy for them to find and explore things online. But the great thing about a book is that if you don't like what you're reading, you can close the book. <laughs> If it makes you uncomfortable, yes. you can just stop reading. And as a librarian, I found that kids 
are really good at kind of determining their own comfort levels with a book. They'll put it down or they'll return it early to the library if they know that this isn't for me. So much of this book is about Maya becoming comfortable with air sexuality, which is maybe not like the majority of people's sexuality. And that's okay. And that's part of what this is about. And if some people do not want to consume books that have any sort of sexual explicitness, there's a lot of reasons why that might be true. For some people, sexuality is so freighted with trauma that it's not a place that they even want to go. And I feel like that's, you know, something to respect, but it's not a reason to keep that book out of everybody's hands. Because I think books are a big way that people heal from some of their traumas. They see that, you know, somebody can have a bad experience at at a thing and then go back and have a better experience at a thing. And people, people need to see that people are curious, right? And that's why I like to share that page from Anne Frank. People need to see that if you're curious about sexuality or you're uncomfortable with sexuality or, you know, or any of these questions, that you're just not alone in that and there's space for your story to take shape as well. Yes, good point. But it's, it's not a book I would necessarily teach in a classroom. As an English teacher, I would not the sexually explicit images, it would be too much. I think it would be uncomfortable to discuss it for many of the students. It's going to be too much for some student, and that is genuinely okay. But it is a book that I want to be widely available. It's a book that I want to be able to recommend, perhaps with caution, but with without shame. I love what Mr. Rogers says, which is anything human is mentionable, and anything mentionable is manageable. So I wanted to piggyback on you saying, you know, these about how you wouldn't choose to teach this in a classroom, but you think it's, but you think it should be available. And that is, that's what I wanted to talk about. I do think it should be available to high schoolers. Earlier, we talked about genderqueer winning some awards. One of them was an Alex Award, which the American Library Association gives every year to books that are written for adults, but have special appeal for young adults ages 12 to 18. In my role as a high school librarian, I would look at those list of Alex Award winners and do my research on them to determine which might be relevant to the high schoolers in my school. I actually, I don't think I ordered genderqueer for the library that I was working in at the time that it won the Alex Award, and I don't remember why. It did get a starred review from the School Library Journal, which definitely would have influenced me to purchase it. But yeah, I think it absolutely has a place on the shelf in a high school library, and I disagree with the arguments for banning it. But... If I worked in a public library, I would place this book in the adult graphic novel section of the library as opposed to the teen section. And that's just because I don't view it as a teen or young adult book because this book takes Maya through childhood, through her teen years, and into adulthood. So, and 
uh, Maya is looking back on the childhood and adolescent years, but to me, it's not a truly young adult book because it's not in the moment of Maya being in her teen years. But just because it doesn't fit into being a young adult book doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place in a high school library. The Grapes of Wrath isn't a young adult book. Moby Dick isn't a young adult book. High schoolers read quote unquote adult books all of the time. I think what I'm going to carry with me from this book is it's pretty simple. I think it's Maya's courage. Where the book ends, Maya is teaching. He is worrying about what the ramifications of being fully out are going to be. I think that it was just such a brave thing for Maya to put this book into the world. And I think it's it's not only brave, it's really generous. And I think it's really generous because a story like this really lights a candle in a lonely place for a lot, a lot of people. Being a queer individual who is receiving so much blowback just for naming their experience and saying who they are. And so, yeah, just the book itself as, as a singular testament to a non-binary identity, that courage is really powerful. What about for you? What's going to stay with you? I liked how certain books and music were a connection to the queer world for Maya while growing up. Um, like discovering that David Bowie record and it was such a revelation and how Maya cherished queer books like Boy Meets Boy, Will Grayson, Will Grayson, Annie on My Mind. Yes. yes. In an op-ed for the Washington Post, Maya wrote that these books kept me company through my years of questioning and confusion. And kids still yes. need books to keep yes. them company and let them know they're not alone, whether they're going through some kind of gender identity issue or, you know, another tough situation yes. that they might be going through. Books can help them know that they're not alone. So that's my biggest takeaway from this and why I think it's so important that this book should be available to teenagers. You know, Maya had this music and these books as a comfort growing up. And for other kids now, Maya's book, Gender Queer, can be one of those books that's a comfort to them. So that's why I think it's so important that it should be available, even if, you know, regardless of whether we're choosing to put it on a syllabus um, as required reading, which, you know, maybe it wouldn't be required reading and that's fine. But for the kids who need it and for the kids who are going to discover it and get so much out of it. I think it is really important that it be there on a shelf waiting to be discovered. I love that. It makes me, that sort of naturally, I think, leads us into like the songs, the music that we would would pair with this. And I think for me, it was two Ani DeFranco songs, if I can have two. And I'm pretty sure that you are the person who introduced me to Ani. So undying well, gratitude. Been Liz. Liz, oh, Liz was, was the biggest Ani fan. So 
Ani DeFranco's Garden of Simple, which is kind of a deep cut from an early album, but it's really about meeting people in that open field out between ideas of right and wrong, like the Rumi poem says, but Garden of Simple is like that. And it's almost like a, a dream there where she's telling the dream and the dream that she has is that we can know each other apart from the masks that we put on to function well in society. It's really a story about being in a place where it's safe to be vulnerably yourself. The other song is In or Out, which is Ani's song about being bisexual by her about her own bisexual desire and the way that you know in many areas of life just from filling out a form to like introducing yourself it's often assumed that you're going to make certain choices based on certain facts that someone thinks they know about you um, but how each of us and our desires are a lot bigger than bigger and more complicated than the easy categories that exist to define them. So are you in or are you out? That's the question that people want to ask you. The question Ani wants to ask back is, what is this really all about? So those will be on our playlist that we make. <laughs> yeah. So um, I feel like my pick is a little bit more on the nose. It's Origin of Love from Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And sort of when reading this and researching the book, one of the kind of more controversial images in the book is depicting um, Maya's fantasy that is based on Plato's symposium. <laughs> so Origin of Love is actually also based on a story from Plato's symposium, which is a myth about the origin of love. In this story, there are three different sexes, the male who comes from the sun, the female who comes from the earth, and an androgynous sex that comes from the moon and is a mix of both male and female. So eventually Zeus, who's there, feels threatened by their power and he splits them all in half. And that's why we all wander around now looking for our other half or, or our true love. But anyway, the star of Hedwig and the Angry Inch and the composer of the song have both since come out as non-binary. Wow. Um, in, in the years, you know, since the musical debuted. So... It is really just a cool song about gender, but it has kind of the same roots in in Plato as as genderqueer does. <laughs> so that's why I picked it for this book. Wow, that is delightfully illuminating and nerdy enough for Maya. I think <laughs> I feel like we. <laughs> I feel like it was I know it's funny it's funny because people are scandalized by that image and it's like has such nerdy origins <laughs> like yeah like your 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 beef is with Plato folks mm -hmm. <laughs> take it up mm -hmm. with Plato which I mean there's a lot that we could do there but when when you mentioned that it reminded me of one last image or story which is 
I think that uh, Pla- there's an image in Plato where, um, like, never mind, I don't want to say it. <laughs> it's like my <laughs> half soul thing, but I'm going to get it wrong. It's going to yeah. be weird. Yeah. So. Well, that's that's basically like what the origin of love is. Yeah. I, and I don't I don't remember what the lyrics are, but it's basically like, you know, the the one gender is like two two girls rolled into one. Yeah. But then, you know, so. Yeah. So we don't even need to say it. It's just like people. Just, yeah, just listen to the song. <laughs> listen to the song. Plato is queer. The end. <laughs> yeah. People are scandalized by this thing. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, but it's in in this classic text or it's existed for thousands of years. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, because queerness has to because queerness has. Two. Yeah, we didn't have the language that we have now, but that doesn't mean that people and their desires didn't exist. People and their desires exist exactly mm. now as they did as they as long as there have been people it's been there's been queer people so yeah and if this hadn't been a graphic novel with illustrations in it if there was just a line <laughs> in a book where the author wrote i had a detailed fantasy based on plato's symposium <laughs> that would not be something that would get people's attention no it's just be it's just because there's pictures it's just because there's pictures but here's the thing folks with a good enough imagination you can draw your own mind pictures so mm-hmm. you might as well now ban the bible because it is filthy <laughs> <laughs> seriously there's some. Um, Mm. One of the granddaddies of underground comics, Robert Crumb did a graphic novel of the Bible that's like X rated, like, cause it's all the begats and it's like, you know, guys like hump. It's just, I mean, it, it is completely a graphic novel of the Bible <laughs> and it should not be in the children's section. Absolutely not. Even the brick Bible, which is a graphic novel of the Bible made out of Lego, <laughs> um, it is also graphic. I'm assuming there's a copy of that in your home or no? You know what? There is not. My godmother, mm. who's very evangelical, sent that to us because we are indeed brick fanatics over here. It is, as I said, graphic sexually. She didn't know that. She just was like, oh, the Bible for my little brick, for my little you know, nephews that love, you know, that love Lego. Um, and I was like, oh, got on the phone. Auntie Sherry, sorry. Like, <laughs> so I think I returned it and got something more age appropriate, more age appropriate than the Bible. Wow. But would you let them read it now? Now that they're older? Sure. If they wanted to, they can, now yeah. they can, now they can, well, my oldest son just turned 17. So he doesn't need my permission to buy a ticket to an R-rated movie anymore. So. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Everything, everything's fair game. It's all fair game. You know, I think it's almost always a mistake to like take a restrictive stance in general mm-hmm. with kids because people are just all the more curious about things that are forbidden them. And it really creates a backlash and kind of, you know, I don't think anything Absolutely. good comes from secrets and hiding. So yeah. Like Anne Frank said, just get it out in the open. We're curious. Mm-hmm. You want to know? Tell us. What's the big deal? Thanks for listening to today's episode of Lit Mix. Check the link in our show notes for other perspectives and resources on the books and topics discussed in this show. 
Lit Mix is created, hosted, and produced by Andrea Benvenuto and me, Rachel Stone. Follow us on Instagram at litmixpodcast or email us at litmixpodcast at gmail.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts or drop a few coins in our tip jar on Ko-Fi. Thanks for your support.